John Piper's quote about prayer is what came to mind as I was studying and preparing for this message in Psalm 64. He says, Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It is not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is much greater than we are. If you try to turn prayer into a domestic intercom to bring you another pillow, it malfunctions. And many of us wonder why. It wasn't made to be an intercom. It was made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. As I read Psalm 64 and unpack the big idea that we are in a war. Our words are our greatest weapon. And God's way of winning is very surprising. I think you'll better understand why I read for you this quote from John Piper. So let's dive into Psalm 64. And let's turn to the Lord in our lives, like David does here, in desperation, calling out in the midst of war. Follow along as I read. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, big idea. Psalm 64 teaches us that first, we're in a war. Second, the greatest weapon of this war is our words. And third, the way that God wins, it's unexpected, surprising. First, you'll see this very clearly in verses 1 and 2. David has enemies. He's in a war. Quite literally, he's probably running for his life. We've been studying the Psalms for a while now, and we're not so sure who his enemies are in this Psalm. There's nothing in it that tells us specifically in the superscription, just to the choir master, a Psalm of David. None of the descriptions make it clear that he's running from Saul or his son Absalom. 
David's enemies are not very clear in this psalm. He says, hear my voice, O God, and in my complaint, and just to make it clear, this is more of a judicial complaint, like coming before the judge. He's picturing God as the one who's in charge of everything, and he's saying, I have a complaint, a formal complaint that I'm, I'm making. And so it's, it's not like he's whining to God. Oh, God. He's praying, as John Piper says, in this wartime setting, save, preserve. I have enemies. Hide me from their secret plots, from the throng of the evildoers. Interestingly, I've told you a time and time again that there are key words that keep getting repeated that find their source in the Psalms, in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And here again in verse 2, the throng of evildoers is that same word that we have about the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain against the Lord and his anointed. And I've told you time and time again that the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked in Psalm 1, the man who meditates on the law day and night, that's the first major theme of the psalm. The second major theme of the psalms is that the, the man that God has chosen, the anointed ruler, the, the king over the people of Israel, he has enemies from all over the place, and they're raging. I think it immediately made me ask the question, do you and I have enemies? I mean, if we're going to apply this psalm in any way, it's obvious to most of us, I assume, that we're not David, we're not living in Israel, we're not either the anointed king or the actual king on the throne. Saul or Absalom are not our enemies. But do we have enemies? Should we have enemies? How many of you assume that if you rightly follow God and do this Christian thing right, then everybody will like you? As if the Bible was an ancient version of how to win friends and influence people. Is that what Christianity is? Or what if the opposite is true? What if rightly following God necessitates that you may in fact increase your enemies? As I thought about this regarding what are just some clear examples in scripture about the idea that you and I, we have enemies. We are in a war similar to David. Well, Matthew 5, Jesus teaches us that we should love our enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Your enemies, meaning some of us, we have very personal enemies. Some of those personal enemies might be in our own household. As I was preparing this week for our Advent devotions that hopefully some of you have received. They're in our newsletter every week. Yesterday there was a true or false puzzle. True or false. Jesus came into the world in the incarnate Son of God. Jesus was born, baby in a manger, to bring peace on earth. What's the answer, friends? True. Go read Luke chapter 2. True. Jesus, Christmas, is about the Prince of Peace coming into the world. True or false? Jesus came into the world, and he is a stumbling block 
He is a stone of offense. He is a sword that pierces the heart of his mother, Mary, and he is a divider of households. Answer, true. Matthew 12, 34 says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a second. We just said that's why you came. Christmas is about the Prince of Peace coming to the earth. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Ah, you see, the Bible contradicts itself, the skeptic says. Jesus continues. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Enemies, followers of Jesus, will have enemies in their own household. So how do we reconcile these ideas? Jesus came to bring peace and a sword. And the answer is that Jesus is the one and only solution for peace on this earth. Therefore, he came to bring peace. But for those who reject Jesus, there will be no peace. And therefore, there's a divide. You either accept and receive the coming of Jesus as peace on earth, the Prince of Peace. Or you do what Jesus says, continuing in Matthew 12, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We have personal enemies. We have household enemies. We have spiritual enemies. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're instructed to put on the full armor of God. So we can stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I wonder if there's any of us here today that our prayer life languishes because we do not believe point one. We are in a war. Therefore, we only turn to God for day-to-day -day comfort instead of going to battle. I do think that this is not popular in the general sense that I get. I don't know if that's the same sense you get, but this is one of the dominant themes of early Christians that were being martyred and killed and sacrificed for their faith in Jesus. Perhaps our prosperity and our ease and our lack of persecution for many of us here in the U.S. means that we fail to see the severity of the war that we're in. We don't pray like David does in Psalm 64, 1. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. Brothers and sisters, I think it's good for you to be reminded that we do have enemies. 
Some of them might be in our own household. Our mom and dad disown us because we love Jesus more than we love anything else in this world. All of us, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, the Bible says, has one final enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus Christ must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet and the very last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. I wonder if you've thought about death as an enemy and that you're at war with death. This is the way the Bible talks. And I hope that you realize as you entertain the idea of wanting to be a Bible-believing Christian follower of Jesus, for those of you that are Christians, it requires you to at least entertain and if not apply these certain images and ideas We are in a war, and therefore, there are certain tactics and ways of living and even a sense of urgency about the way that we would live that I think would be fitting for many of us. If you're here today and you're a guest or a visitor, I'm just glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Sunday before Christmas. We plan to meet again next week on Christmas Day, and you're welcome to join us again to celebrate the the meaning of Christmas as Jesus Christ and his birth. But I want you to understand that you do have this one last enemy death. And many of us are here today knowing that Jesus Christ has won a victory over death. And even though we'll explain that point in point three, for now I hope that you understand that that enemy will win. You will die. If you have no faith in Jesus Christ, that will be the end of the story for you. The death and then the second death. The judgment of God, the remaining in God's wrath. Realize that we ourselves are born into this world as sinners. And our enemy isn't just dying. Our enemy is the judgment of death because of our opposition to God himself. Point one, we're in a war. We have enemies. Point two, the weapon that we have at our disposal, the most powerful weapon in this war, is our words. I think it's one of the main themes of Psalm 64. Let's look down and just walk through again, verses three to six. That section makes this point very explicit. In verses 1 and 2, David is talking about how he once saved and hidden from enemies. And in a great play on words, he then talks about those who are hiding and waiting to ambush him. But notice that it's their tongues that are like swords in verse 3. Or their bitter words are like arrows. And there they are hiding in bushes, waiting for you to walk by, and then they jump out and ambush the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear, verse 4 says. And then verses 5 and 6 tell us that these enemies will talk of laying snares in the secret, and they will hold fast to their evil purpose because they think that there's no one that's going to catch them. That's the point of that question. Who, Who can see me? This is a denial of God's omniscience and knowledge of all things that there is nothing that he cannot see 
And in verse 6, it says that they search out injustice. They search it out. They don't just do unjust things. They're plotting and scheming for injustice. And then it says, we have accomplished a diligent search. And the way this is written is to just communicate the fact that they think that their plan is foolproof. Very arrogant, cocky, smug. (laughs) We're going to win this war. And then there's this last little line that most people believe is kind of an editorial note, like an aside, a parenthesis. For the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. The entire description of these enemies continues from three to six, but then at that very last line of verse six, it's as if David wants to say, how wicked is the human heart? How deceptive is the inner being of our mind. Clearly, the most powerful weapon in this war that we are in is words. I think that that's not just the case in Psalm 64, but rather this is a theme throughout all of the Bible. Words reflect the nature of the deep and innermost parts of our heart, as verse 6 says. And as we saw last week from Psalm 63, the thing that we delight in the most will determine our desires, and those desires drive our decisions, and therefore they drive the decision to say something or not say something. So take Psalm 63 from last week and realize that what do you delight in the most? And if you needed a very practical exercise to figure out how do I learn what I delight in the most, answer is in Psalm 64. Do inventory of your words. How do you speak when other people are in your life that are irritating you? How do you speak when you're driving alone in the car to the person next to you that cuts you off? What do you say to your spouse, your children, as you're getting ready for church and we've got to be on time? Hurry up. In what way is it a reflection of your own heart and reveal the thing that you delight in the most? The greatest and most powerful weapon in the scriptures, I believe, is words. First and foremost, God's word. The first page of the Bible begins that there was nothing and then God speaks and then there's something. Ten times, in fact, it says, and God said, and it was so, telling us that the most life-powerful agent is words, fundamentally from God's very word. And then the story that was read for you in Genesis chapter 3 told us that the deceit of the serpent to twist words, God's word, is the most destructive power in the entire universe. All of sin can be traced back to a misunderstanding of God and his word. Have you traced your sin back to a misunderstanding of God and his word? Brothers and sisters that are Christians here in this gathering, I hope and pray that you will do deep, regular reflection on the way that words are the greatest weapon we have in this warfare. 
and that you will not only examine your words, but that you will fight tremendously hard to do battle with the deep parts of your heart as they are expressed in the words that come out of your mouth. This point reminds me of the book of James. Do you all know the section in James chapter 3 that talks about the power of one's words? He says in verse 4, look at a ship. Look how large ships are and how they're driven by strong winds, but they're guided by a small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also. The tongue is just a small member of the body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small little fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, and it is full of deadly poison. God's word is the most powerful, life-creating force of the universe. Twisting God's word is the most destructive force in the universe. And your words have the reflection of being an image bearer of God. They can build up and praise and bring life, and they can destroy and tear down. In his excellent book, War of Words, which is an inspiration for our sermon title, a psalm about the war of words, Paul David Tripp says, all of us talk. There's one thing we know about all of us. We all talk. There's another thing we all know. The greatest moments in life and the worst moments in life are associated with talking. Your greatest pains, fears, insecurities, scars that you carry, words like arrows, like swords. Hey kids, have you ever heard the saying? Hey grown-ups, have you ever heard the saying? Sticks and stones, they may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think the Bible says something quite different. Sticks and stones, they can break your bones, but words can pierce your heart and do the greatest damage than any stick or stone. I want us to meditate this week on your words. But as we do so, it would be trivial for us to end the sermon here because A, we've not finished walking through the psalm, and B, there is a victory that has already been won. And the war that we're in is actually one that is already over. But it's surprising the way that this war turns out. Look with me at the rest of our psalm, verses 7 to 10, and see if the reversal of sorts in verse 7 doesn't help point us to the way that God wins this war in the end. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. 
All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. There is a reason for joy this Christmas. And it's because of the way that God has sent his arrow, shot his arrow at the enemies of God. Notice that the way the enemies are given such length in their description from verses 3 to 6, and then their downfall and destruction is summed up so swiftly in verse 7 and 8. God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. It's quick and sudden, and they are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. We know from Scripture that Jesus Christ is described in John chapter 1 as the Word. So I think it's best, especially here in the middle of the Christmas Advent season, for you to be meditating on the fact that God has shot his arrow. If the arrows in the earlier half are words from deceitful tongues of scheming wicked men, well then, what would be the arrow of verse 7? I would think it's the word of God. His word shoots at them and it defeats them soundly, swiftly. And it turns their own tongues against them. There is a specific story in David's life that we could turn to that might seem like a fulfillment of these words. But more significantly, we know that the greater Son of David, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word was slandered. You know how it says that all will see these ruined enemies and wag their heads? That same phrase is used to talk about the wagging heads of those that are mocking and shaming Jesus. And it was precisely because of deceitful words that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Read through the gospel stories again. And notice that what changes Jesus from living to dying on a cross is that false accusations were made against him. And then they heaped them up again and again as he hung on that cross. Are you starting to get the picture that the way God shoots his arrow back at them is by allowing their words to crucify the word of God, the one who became human. And as he did so, they laughed, they wagged their heads, and they thought, we won! Little did they know three days later, Jesus Christ would rise again from the dead. Little did they know that their words of deceit would bring about the greatest revelation of truth that has ever existed. Little did they know that Jesus Christ would not be defeated by their deceit and that God would shoot his arrow and it would bring swift destruction. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged by the reversal of God's ironic and poetic justice. Do not give in to the fear or the thought that those who are doing acts of injustice are going to get away with it. They will not. 
If the cross teaches us anything, when Jesus came into the world, he did so to demonstrate for us the power of God's word. And his word will not return void. It will accomplish its purpose. And so Jesus Christ accomplished all that was purposed for him. And therefore, the way to win was by losing. The way to win was dying. It looks like a cross. Everything about Christmas should tell you that Jesus being born was weird. Why was he born as a baby? Why not just drop Jesus down from heaven as a full-grown 33-year-old man and die on the cross? Let's get over with it already. Why must he be a little infant in a manger? And why does that little infant cause Herod and religious authorities for the rest of his life such fear? The reason Etienne came up and read for us Matthew chapter 2 is that in the same way that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, but in another way, Jesus came to bring division. There's another riddle. In the midst of Jesus being the bright star that's shining in all of its brilliant glory as he brings the light of God's word to the earth, there is tremendous darkness. And the darkness only amplifies the more that Jesus is revealed throughout his life. So if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, I want you to know that the way of winning is very upside down. What I'm presenting to you from Psalm 64 and really the message of the whole Bible is that if you're going to embrace the Christian faith, if you want to get anything out of it, if you want to follow Jesus, I think you should. You need to realize that it is going to uproot all of your typical assumptions. He's not a massive ruler on a throne and a king with a palace. He's put down in a feeding trough in the backwoods of Bethlehem and Nazareth. That's what winning looks like. It looks like Christmas. It looks strange. But this strangeness is good, good news for all of us. And I pray that each of us will receive by faith the good news and do what verse 10 says. Rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him and let all the upright in heart glory, exalt, praise God. Or as verse 9 says, tremble with fear. And go around telling everyone what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. It's very interesting that David in this psalm talks about as if what God has done has already happened while he's in the midst of his trial. We, in a similar way, can live differently in this world knowing that what God has already done by defeating the greatest enemy, death itself, it'll make the war and the way that you wield its weapon of your words Look very different if you realize I'm not fighting for my salvation. I'm receiving the salvation because he fought for me. Do you see the difference between those two? And if you do, will you allow it to shape your heart so that your desires change 
and your affection of pondering the beauty of this upside-down kind of way of winning change your words themselves, your goals, your ambitions, your dreams. My hope and prayer is that this would happen today and again and again as we apply God's word to our lives. Would you close me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come in the name of your Son, Jesus, and we thank you for the word of God made flesh and the demonstration of ultimate power, victory, and the winning of a cosmic war. The promise of Genesis 3.15, we thank you that it has been fulfilled when the seed of the woman, born of a woman, not just dropped from heaven, crushed the serpent's head and did so with ever, with always speaking the truth and never lying. We thank you for the ways that he withheld words and remained silent like a sheep led to the shearers, led to the slaughter. We thank you, God, for the way that the word of God, Jesus Christ, is our hope of victory. And so we want to pray for you to kill in us our sin. We ask that your Holy Spirit will give us new desires for how to advance in this world, of what it means to be great, and that we would see that there is a beauty in being humble and not winning every argument and getting the last word. Lord, we pray that there would be so many fruitful applications of Psalm 64 and this meditation of your word. May it have its powerful effect now as we go on from our day. Lord, may we be those that do not hear your word and then do nothing about it. May the points of application, the things that pierced our own heart, would you make sure that they would bear good fruit for your name and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.